Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics podcast. This is Mike Lewis, Doug Battle, Emory Marketing Analytics Center, www.fandomanalytics.com. I think that's the preliminaries. Doug, we are week three or week four of the NBA playoffs now. Is that right? We are. Yeah, yeah. And it's looking like it's looking like we could have a small market finals. Like that's still in play. I think the Jazz are going to win the series against the Clippers. I think Jazz are going to win that one. But the Suns have got to be the favorite to make it out of the West after their recent sweep. And they already took down the Lakers. That team's looking hot. They just got to stay healthy. And then out of the East, like you still got the Hawks in play. Um, of course, they're down 2-1 at the moment, but we'll be pulling for them. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks have tied things up with the Nets. So it's like, wow, could we have like a Milwaukee versus Phoenix NBA Finals? That'd be crazy. And that is our shortest episode on record. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, I, I found myself, you know, thinking – now that we're down to what four four teams in each in each conference, it's more manageable to me. It's like I can't yeah. I can't sort of track. I can't watch that many games. But it, I found myself dwelling on the fact that how the NBA always is able to write the stories, and had the thought that it's because you know the, the star driven system that the NBA has had for years is tailor made to creating these stories, and so in some ways. Round one, we got LeBron taking on Steph Curry to even make it into the playoffs. LeBron loses in the first round. But now we've got a new story. We've got the the story of the Phoenix Suns. And more than that, we've got Chris Paul. We have Chris Paul at age, I want to say 35 or 36, you know? Uh, Old. I, I will always remember Chris Paul and that Wake Forest team coming into Champaign and losing to Darren Williams and D. Brown in... And I think it was Wake Forest was ranked number one and Illinois was ranked something like number three. And then Illinois went on to win 29 or so games in a row. Uh, so, you know, I've, Chris Paul is someone that's been in, you know, sort of part, part of my legends and myths of sports for a long time. But he is suddenly the, he's suddenly the main event, right? This is yeah. his, at age 36, he is now in a position to, Seemingly, things seem to be clearing up. There's a lot of opportunity to maybe win a championship and create a, an even better legacy for CP3. Yeah, and the, the Nets on the other side of the bracket, um, they've got some stars with injuries, James Harden and Kyrie Irving. And so they're that stacked team, but they're looking less stacked by the day. And even at full health, I mean, this the Suns team – it's just a complete basketball team from the team aspect, the way they move the ball, the way they shoot the ball, the way they don't have a weakness inside. They don't have a weakness on the perimeter. Like they're balanced and they play great basketball. And also the Suns fans are the best six man in the playoffs right now. A very passionate fan base that many have forgotten even existed over the you know recent years coming alive in these playoffs. We saw one of their fans knock out a, a fan of an opposing team earlier this week. And he said, Suns in foe and the Suns won in foe. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful thing to see, not the assault, but 
uh, the fan passion, of course. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, in, in round one, Devin Booker seemed to be the big story for the Suns. Now it seems to be Chris Paul. Uh, in, the, in the other side of the West, who do we have? We've got, uh, and, and look, the, I think the Suns have a week off now, right? The, before they, so they, they get some rest. Which they need, because Chris Paul's been banged up. And so then in the other matchup, we've got, uh, we've got, Ky- we've got Kawhi Leonard. Um, and the Clippers taking on, um, what would you say, Utah? Utah, Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert. Really the, the COVID team, if, if we remember. Rudy Gobert was the player that coughed on, jokingly coughed on the microphones and the cell phones of the reporters when, when they were all concerned about COVID when the league shut down last year. And then the next day he tested positive, and it, it was really the huge storyline of COVID in sports a year ago. Absolutely. I remember that. I remember that press conference. It was uh, it was so kind of jarring. I think it had a huge impact in terms of how the NBA moved on that where because mm-hmm. he, he went around and I think he even touched everything in the room. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He, I think had the same respect for the virus that many Americans had at that point in time when there's very little information on it. Um, and, and it felt I don't know. We've never seen anything like that before. And a lot of people just kind of didn't take it seriously at that point. And uh, Rudy Gobert was leading the way on that. But he also kind of (laughs) probably accidentally uh, forced the NBA's hand on how they handled things and and led to a lot of things being shut down, postponed, delayed or whatnot. Fun fact, though, he scored the first points of the bubble after shutting down the season. So He is the the key player in the COVID drama. Mm -hmm. But you know, so thinking about that that matchup of Utah and LA, it's it's interesting from marketing perspective, right? Uh, I'll endlessly talk about these kind of large market teams with uh, one iconic franchise and one second tier franchise. The Lakers are now out. Is this an opportunity for the Clippers to now actually make some headway in that market? Uh, can if the Clippers go on a run, if Kawhi wins the championship, brings the championship to LA, and it's not to the Los Angeles Lakers, does that shift the needle towards Clipper fandom? Uh, alternatively, if Utah, I mean, talk about small market, uh, Salt Lake City, the Utah Jazz is you know probably in the bottom bottom uh, five six markets in the NBA. Though there is a, I, I understand there's a massive amount of tech moving into that area and a real estate boom. But talk about a, an isolated, relatively small market. It's, you know, again, the, these NBA stories, and, and I think it's, and look, you tell me what you think. I, I find myself thinking that the, like the, it's almost the nature of the game where you're playing five on five, so you don't have a lot of players out there. There's no helmets, um, so the people can see the, the folks all the time. And it ends up just being something where you naturally gravitate to a one or two stars on on every team, and so it we we've talked at length about the idea of like who's next after LeBron, and I'm starting to think maybe it's just with the NBA. There's always going to be a next. It's it's almost the nature of the game that there's always going to be someone stepping forward because whoever wins is is the hero and they are there's so much attention paid to those folks that they end up framing it now i, I suspect that we may, 
and, and you, again, you tell me, because you watch this more closely than I do. I suspect we're entering an era that's going to be unusual for the NBA, something we haven't seen since maybe the 1970s, where there is no guy or there is no one or two guys where this is going to be superstar, league superstar by committee. Yeah, I think it's a by committee um, feel right now. There's not one player that owns everyone else. I think, you know, the the most recent era that this reminds me of uh, was actually early in Kobe Bryant's career before he had a full grasp on the entire league. He was kind of a supporting player to Shaq or many perceived him in that way. Um when there were a number of guys, you know, Jordan was late in his career or retired, and you had Allen Iverson, Kobe Bryant, Tracy McGrady, Vince Carter, Andre Iguodala was in that era. I mean, there there was a number of – they were mostly shooting guards, and it kind of felt like any one of these guys could emerge and be that guy. And, of course, Kobe Bryant did become that guy through championships, right, through, through um, his postseason success more so than – statistical success although of course he, he had a lot of success on the stat sheets and um of course i failed to mention tim duncan as many people do but tim duncan was in that group and statistically is right up there with kobe so at some point it seems like somebody rises to the occasion usually it's the player that gets the rings right i mean or you talk about tim duncan and kobe those are the two out of that group that one championship. It could have been Tracy McGrady or Vince Carter, Allen Iverson. You know that we, that we'd be talking about if they had five or six rings, but but it's it's not. Yeah, I think that's that's completely true. I, and maybe and look, the world's going to change, right? The player, if we know anything, is that these players are going to move around in the off season whenever they get a chance, trying to combine forces so they can be the guy that gets that ring. But looking at where how the players are distributed right now, it's hard to foresee where that where that next dynasty is going to come from. Yeah, I think the easy one right now, obviously they're super hot at the moment, would be Phoenix um, because this is a team that went undefeated in the bubble last year, beat the Lakers this year, and they're very young. They're much like the Warriors a few years back. They're built mostly through the draft. DeAndre Ayton was drafted. Devin Booker was drafted. And so they've got all these cheap but valuable assets. Um, which gives them the freedom to continue to add valuable players. Of course, Chris Paul is aging, and he's not going to be on that team forever. And so it's it's an issue where he'll probably have to be uh, replaced by another great point guard at some point. But at the same time, I think Devin Booker is emerging, and it, it could be kind of a Kobe Shaq thing where at some point Shaq moves on, Chris Paul retires or whatnot, and, and Devin Booker takes on a larger role as he matures, and it certainly seems as though he's prepared for that, um, and they bring in some more pieces and continue to compete. And so that team, honestly, as far as how they're built, reminds me a lot of the Golden State Warriors a few years back. Um, but like you said, things change. I, I could see... Luca at some point being surrounded by superstars and, and that changing the outlook and the West Coast. Um, not to mention this year's a little bit of an asterisk year where teams like the Suns have an advantage because they didn't go so late into the season last year. Obviously, the Lakers were at a disadvantage and, and suffered a lot of injuries that cost them. Yeah. It, has the Lakers window closed, you think? And look, this is just this is just talking and it's it's not the most informed talk doing it in the middle of the playoffs when you're sus you're sort of susceptible to however the media wind is blowing. Right now, Chris yeah. Paul's the guy. Next week it could be somewhere else. But 
I mean, yeah. last year it was Trey Young. You know, yeah. he's kind of not being talked but, about a lot right now because his team's down. But, but you know, the injuries to Anthony Davis and and look, I I almost think there's something odd going on where we've almost gotten away from realizing how quickly basketball players age. Where a lot of the guys that we focus on as kind of the core NBA stars are approaching thirty or north of thirty. North of thirty, a lot of them. Um, and, and so when I look at these guys of who's next, it's I think you've got to look at the the folks that are twenty three, twenty four, twenty five. That that's those are the guys that are about to be prime time for a four or five year run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as far as the Lakers' outlook, I don't think their windows closed. I think they still have enough talent to win a championship. I don't think it's a matter of talent. Uh, frankly, I, you know, obviously I think they can get it done with this coaching staff. I think it comes down to health and that's the biggest concern as far as their window with the age of even Anthony Davis, he's, he's a spring chicken compared to LeBron James age wise, but he's had a history of injuries more so than LeBron. And so for him being 28, 29, um, he's approaching 30. He's already got this history of injuries and it's cost the Lakers It cost the Pelicans back in the day. He's, he's rarely made it through a season. I don't know if it's the way he's built. Um, it, it is what it is. LeBron's finally at an age where his, his body is taking a toll. It's incredible that he's been able to do what he's done for so long. And at some point he's, he's got to slow down. Uh, he can't carry a team. I don't think to a finals like he did as, as a youngster uh, with the Cavaliers. And so, I think he needs Anthony Davis to be fully held. I think they need Anthony Davis to be MVP of that team, to be frank. And I think he's capable of it. He's just got to be healthy. And we haven't seen him stay healthy um, in a while. So their window's still open, but it's not going to be easy. Even at full health, teams like the Suns are not easy to beat. Um, teams like the Nets are not easy to beat. But in addition to that, you know, uh, the chances of them being at full health are less and less every year. So I think their odds are going down, but I don't think their window's closed. Yeah, and maybe this is kind of a, a matter of, almost me doing a little, let's call it soft analytics in my head in terms mm-hmm. of just sort of looking at the, looking at the ages and looking at the injury, injury profiles and thinking, you know, that these things tend to tend to go in one direction. Now I'll fully admit it's not like I've ever collected numbers on and, and run any data or models on injury analytics. I, I think I've mentioned in the past, the reason for that, that's just that, 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 the data just isn't there. The data is too unreliable. You don't have a, enough of a sense of how severe injuries are and whatever data you can hand uh, and collect. But I, but you know, a, a, age is a real thing. So it's, uh, but like I said, it's to me, it's a beautiful thing. It's when one door closes, a window opens, right? And so it's going to be an interesting period for the the NBA. And, and look, and look, the West is. This is great. Uh, this is this is great theater. This is great narrative. Um, back to the East. So you mentioned a little bit about the Nets. Now, obviously, two guys injured, and now it's Kevin Durant as a one-man kind of heroic battle against the Milwaukee Bucks. Which, to be fair, the Milwaukee Bucks are somewhat a one-man battle with Giannis. So it. it it's not like the odds are yeah. really stacked against Durant, <laughs> in my right. opinion. I'm just writing the headlines, Doug. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, and look, they, I, 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 I don't know how well, how much youth he's got left in him, but 
You know, the, the Nets went out and got a guy like Blake Griffith to uh, Blake Griffin to mm-hmm. uh, to to match up physically against a guy like Giannis and, and Durant. Also, it's so it's it's interesting how I think the story now gets told about you know can the Nets get these players back in the lineup with a you know a ham I think is one a hamstring and the other a, a twisted ankle. Uh, it's going to be an interesting matchup. It's kind of a nice one-on-one kind of star against star situation. Um, and, and again, I'm exaggerating this. I, I'm relying on you for sort of the more nuanced and team-focused analysis of this. I'm just thinking of the storytelling of these two 6'10", 6'11", mobile players and how this battle is being fought. Yeah. One interesting thing, the Nets are actually still title favorites in Vegas at this point. And so that makes you think, yeah, we'll see James Harden. We'll see Kyrie Irving back. Um, they're also very capable of winning this series, I think, without those two players. And I think they're capable of winning the next series without those two players. I think where they need to be healthy is the NBA Finals. Uh, the problem for the Nets is we haven't really seen them at full health all season long. You talk about aging stars. And again, these guys are not LeBron's age. These guys are closer to their primes. Uh, but Kevin Durant coming off an Achilles injury um, last season. Kyrie seems to always have had injuries his entire career. He's one of those injury-prone players. And Harden, post-MVP years, has been getting banged up more and more often. And so, you know, we we got a very talented team, but it's guys that are are getting banged up left and right. And if you look at their matchup, eventually, you know, should they make it far enough to play the Phoenix Suns? I don't, <laughs> you know, at this point, or if you told me before the season that that would be the matchup, like, I think anyone would have taken Brooklyn in four. Uh, but at this point, it's like, I think the Suns are more, of course, Chris Paul's the one issue as far as health is concerned. But like, I trust Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton and company to be there for seven games. Do so I think Kyrie and, and Durant and Harden are going to make it? I don't know. I, I think that that's a much more intriguing matchup than it once looked like because you've got this youthful team versus these aging veterans that have experience uh, but that can't seem to stay on the floor. Like I said, great stuff. The stories write themselves. Uh, it sounds like you are not – sounds like your projection for the finals are Suns-Nets. We have not mentioned Philadelphia versus – or the Atlanta Hawks. Yeah, we haven't, um, partially because I think that series could still go either way. Um, I, I tend to favor – the Sixers, especially considering um, since the injury to uh, DeAndre Hunter for the Hawks, Philly's won two straight. I think Hunter's one of those valuable role players for the Hawks at this point in his career um, that they couldn't afford to lose. And they dropped two straight, so they've got their backs against the wall. I don't expect them to make it past the series. I think they're doing great just to be there. Philadelphia is a very talented team. They've got Doc Rivers as their head coach. And they're very capable. I mean, they're very capable of making the finals. That's a team that could have won the finals. You look, they lost a game seven buzzer beater to Kawhi and the Raptors a few years back. And the Raptors won the finals that year. So, I mean, it easily could have been the Sixers. Still not a huge. I'll never be a fan of Ben Simmons. I don't like guards that cannot shoot. Um, with that said, I think that the Bucks and Nets are, are superior teams to them at the moment. Um, I also think that for whatever reason in the NBA playoffs, it's been a long time since we've seen post players dominate and carry their teams. I think the last one I can remember is Dwight Howard and the Orlando magic. 
which had to be what, like 2010. So, you know, I'll, I'll tend to lean on a guard heavy Nets team over that team. And even like a forward heavy uh, Milwaukee Bucks team, that's a little bit more balanced as well. But nevertheless, I think, you know, Philadelphia is absolutely in the conversation. I wouldn't say, I think the Hawks definitely have the least best odds out of, out of that group. Um, but, you know, the Hawks have defied expectations all year long and would love to see them continue to do it. A Hawks, a Trey Young versus Devin Booker finals would be perfect for me as a fan of, of this next generation. I'd love to see it. I actually think it'd be great for the league, uh, but don't necessarily expect that. Okay. That's the NBA. Um, I don't have much more to add. What else do you, uh, what else are you thinking about? I mean, the, to me, the other, the other story that I have come to love, and I don't think I loved it at first, but ESPN will not let it go. I think it's probably feels like 10% of their coverage that they hit this story every day. And that is Aaron Rodgers with the Packers. It's, yes. it's, it's loosely related to some of this discussion about star stardom in the NBA and how star power develops because Aaron Rodgers is one of the few guys in the NFL that has the ability to dictate terms to teams. I, uh, I, I took, a, I was watching them. Um, watching some of the morning shows on ESPN. And at one point there was a a graphic up there that basically said that NFL teams are encouraging the Packers not to give in to Aaron Rodgers because they are afraid of the NFL becoming more like the NBA where players have the ability to dictate terms and become the show. And, and, And look, I think, I think it's an important story, right? I mean, in the NBA, we talk about players first, wherever they end up, the teams that they're on, sort of players first, team second. Whereas in the NFL, with very few exceptions, maybe we talk about quarterbacks, but it is kind of the, the team and the organization and the system first, and then the superstars. And, and obviously sort of the balance shifts back, back and forth. And we've discussed this multiple times that, it seems like the NFL, especially with some of the salaries, is becoming more quarterback superstar driven. Uh, but the the, the Rodgers story is becoming really interesting to me because it keeps going on, and I don't see I don't see him given 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 an inch. Do you? I don't either. Um, and you know, I think the star driven league that the NBA is. Um, and the NFL feeling like that's a threat. I think it's just inevitable. I think that um, in a social media world and an influencer world, uh, you know, where these guys are marketing for brands and they're on television all the time as their as their personal brand. You know, these personal brands are connecting with people in a way that teams just aren't able to. And I think that it's inevitable. I think it's been inevitable in football that, because we see all the time, I mean, the best quarterbacks are drafted to the worst franchises and they're stuck in not even purgatory. Um, for, Jacksonville? Yeah. Yeah. For <laughs> their primes and they're not able to compete for championships. We've seen it time and time again with these guys. And, you know, in the NBA, when that happens, the, the player after three or four years, the rookie contract is able to go to a, a team like the Lakers or a team with the resources to help them compete and win championships and be part of iconic moments and build a legacy. And, you know, I, I think that's been inevitable for the NFL that, that players would want that and, and 
be willing and understand that maybe the guaranteed money that they lose can be made up in all of the off the field earnings. And so when it comes to Aaron Rodgers, I do think this story is kind of showing the state of the NFL and this battle between being a team driven league. The Green Bay Packers are an iconic franchise um, and being a player driven league where you got the State Farm guy, you know, potentially wanting to jump ships and and change the course MVP of the league, change the course of the NFL, um, change the, the shape of the league for this upcoming season and the future from there. And so, I think it's a great story. As far as what happens, I have no what I have no idea. It just seems at this point it seems so petty that it's hard to imagine Aaron Rodgers week one trotting out there, uh, you know, on Lambeau and, and just playing like like nothing ever happened. Um, oh. It seems inevitable that that there's going to be a boot at this point. In in some ways, the the story is almost shocking. Right when you when you track it like all the way back to Rogers being drafted, Favre not embracing him, um, you know, Favre having no relationship with Aaron Rodgers, to the the Packers never drafting the offensive talent, then not telling him that they were going to draft a, a quarterback in in uh, in in love last year or two years ago. It's kind of. Well, two drafts ago, I was kind of confusing myself. But it, so it's it's really kind of a remarkable story in mismanagement of the relationship forever. And, and look, I can I can almost imagine watching this as a fan, as an outsider, I can imagine that Aaron Rodgers might not be the most, and I use this in a technical sense, the most agreeable kind of guy. Yeah. He strikes me as an independent thinker, and that's probably why he's a great quarterback because of some cognitive abilities to diagnose situations and, 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 and operate quickly. So it, it may be sort of a, his, his type of intellect makes him both a quarterback and not sort of a rah-rah, go-team player. Right. But it's remarkable how poorly the Packers have done in terms of creating a relationship it seems personal right this does not seem business this seems personal it seems personal and it makes you start to question Aaron Rodgers relationship with the Packers franchise from the beginning we just assume because he's won a championship and and competed and been the face of that franchise for so long um, that it's always been great but if you look back to the beginning of his career I mean there was a time when he felt ready to be a starter in the NFL and knowing him, I mean, he's one of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history. He probably was, you know, he probably had a few years of his golden days where he was sitting on the sideline holding the clipboard for old Brett Favre out there, um, who against my New York Giants late in his career in an NFC championship game threw a pick that that sealed the game for the Giants. Aaron Rodgers probably felt like, you know, he he would have been out there winning championships. And so the, you know, I, I feel like there may be frustration pin up over the years of situations where he's felt like undervalued by this franchise, Brett Favre was, was a priority over him. And then he has a couple years in his prime and then they're already looking ahead to their next guy. And he's like, Hey, I'm the MVP of the league here. Uh, we need to be building around me. You know, I don't understand why I'm always being overlooked and always being kind of an afterthought to the franchise that I'm winning games for. And so I think Aaron Rodgers. um, 
is going to move on. But at the at the end of the day, you know, this is a classic case with the Packers. Of it, it kind of reminds me um, with Jordan and the Bulls and uh, the general manager at the time, Jerry Krause, wanting to to make moves, moving on from Jordan while he was still on the team, and that being a question. But it, in retrospect, if you play devil's advocate. Could the Bulls have done a better job continuing their success beyond Jordan had they made some of those moves that Krause wasn't able to, you know, especially bringing on a player like Tracy McGrady? I think so. I think that could have been good for them. And looking at the Packers, you go back. I mean, they were in the same situation with Brett Favre years back when they drafted Aaron Rodgers. Uh, well, that that seemed to work for them. I mean, they're, the NFL is a quarterback-driven league, and it seems like the Packers have a formula of – we get a top 10 guy and when he's got three or four years left, we draft our next guy and start grooming him for the position. And there's never that gap. There's never those years of being quarterback lists and, and wasted years. And it's paid off for them. They've been in the conversation for as long as I can remember because of that. Um, and so from, from the organization standpoint, they probably feel like they did the right thing in drafting Jordan love as far as looking at their future and, and staying in the conversation and um, I think well, I think how Jordan Love pans out will greatly affect the perception of this organization because if he if he continues, you know, that Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers to Jordan Love level of play, you know, if he's playing at that level and, and competing for championships, I think everyone will look back on this and say, you know what, the Packers knew how to handle quarterbacks. Uh, but if he doesn't, and you look back on last year and say, wow, the the Packers drafted a quarterback when they could have had another weapon for Aaron Rodgers, who was you know, possibly a playmaker away from a Super Bowl, um, the Packers look like idiots. And so time will tell um, who who comes out on top of this one. But like I said before, it's hard to imagine Aaron Rodgers sticking around in Green Bay. You know, I tend to think, and Jerry Krause is a good example, that there's, there's like an issue of bias mm-hmm. in all this in terms of overconfidence of general managers. Uh, overconfidence of executives that they think, you know, because like this idea of, well, they went out and they got Aaron Rodgers and then they repeated that with, with Jordan Love a, a decade or so later. You know, who knows how many people were still with the Packers organizations, um, you know, for those two decisions. It, mm-hmm. it may literally have been no one in the general manager's office. It, it's sort of that decision-making suite there may have been zero overlap. So is it something sort of magical about the organization? Mm-hmm. Uh, the the other thing is that, you know, sometimes I suspect that a lot of executives do not understand how rare certain kinds of talent are. Yep. Right? That if you're talking about an Aaron Rodgers, you're talking about, where, where do you think he rates in terms of all-time great quarterbacks? Top 10? Oh uh, yeah, for, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe, maybe top five. Maybe you know, in the the Brady, Manning, Aaron Rodgers. Maybe so. Truly, truly, an elite special talent. Where does Brett Favre? Uh, top twenty, perhaps. Uh, maybe that's too high for Favre. And and I think Jerry Krause is like the ideal situation for this, right? Where you've got the greatest player of all time. Sorry, LeBron. And you are eager to move on from them, right? It, there's got to be, and you can understand this if you just think about the individuals 
the individual's perspective, right? If you're Jerry Grouse, your victory is you're the wheeler dealer that moved on from the goat, kept the bulls competitive by doing all sorts of crazy things, right? You don't want to be the guy that ran, that rode Jordan to the end and then sort of tried to recover from it. But that set of incentives has got to move these guys into almost being too, too aggressive. The the other thing I want to come back to is while we're talking about executives and analytics and biases, the issue of kind of having a, your quarterback feel disrespected and look, Rogers might be, Rogers might be insufferable, right? We we don't know the guy as an individual. He's, he's great on the ads. He was good on jeopardy, but respect is free, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really kind of remarkable in a salary cap driven league that you don't make that guy happy now and then that you couldn't draft a, a wide receiver in 2017. Right. Right. To, to keep the MVP of the league happy to, to keep the peace. Right? Yeah. I think, you know, this brings up a, a subject that doesn't get talked about enough in sports management. As far as we talk about general managers and, you know, who the great ones are and based on who they acquire, what moves they're making. Um, there's a lot of egos in sports and there's a certain level of, for the longest time, I think the Patriots were a great example. And last year it it came to a close where they're able to build their team and do what's in the team's best interests and not think about the individual players, but also maintain the relationships and, and have players buy into what they're doing and have players feel like they're part of something bigger and really believe in the team and not just their themselves individually and i think that's a challenging thing obviously the bulls again are a classic example jerry kraus where you know kraus made a lot of moves that benefited jordan kraus made a lot of moves that benefited the bulls during michael jordan's career and jordan didn't respect him he didn't feel you know it kraus was not able to manage those relationships in a skilled way i don't think many people will question um what kraus uh, many of the moves kraus made as general manager of the chicago bulls but it's the relationship management aspect of the business where he failed and what that ultimately led that Bulls team to fall apart. It seems like Green Bay's seeing the same thing. Um, I'm trying to think of teams, you know, dynasties. I think the San Antonio Spurs are a great example of an organization where the players adored the coach. who's a tough coach on them, but they adored him. They trusted their management. Every single move that was made um, didn't seem to rub anyone the wrong way. They were often viewed as egoless as as a team as far as the players. I don't think that's true. I think even you see Kawhi Leonard now. Uh, turns out he had a pretty big ego, and we never knew it when he was with the Spurs because he was part of that that franchise and he had bought in and and you know they were able to manage that relationship as best they could. Of course, he eventually wanted to move on because of uh, training staff's handling of of a particular injury he had. At least that was his reasoning publicly, but. You know, I think that's a dynasty that that handle relationships well. I think Green Bay has shown in this Aaron Rodgers situation that they're they're absolutely butchering what you like you said is is something that's costless. Um, you know, it's free to to keep a good relationship with Aaron Rodgers. It, it's that's not going to cost you any aspects. That's not assets. It's not going to affect your salary cap. Um, it's something the Green Bay Packers have failed to do, and and it can be the difference in winning championships and not. The word might be ego as a cognitive bias, right? Mm-hmm. That 
ego leads you to do things that ego leads to blind spots. Um, you know, in, in the, the Jerry Krause, in some ways we've got some key themes on this and that, you know, that Jerry Krause, uh, Michael Jordan documentary is definitely one for the ages in terms of really illustrating some of the, let's say some of the real forces that, uh, the drive sports sports decision making. Okay, so the NBA playoffs and Aaron Rodgers, you know, these are both big stories that are going to continue in the weeks ahead. Um, we've, we've got multiple weeks of each of these, probably the Aaron Rodgers story. The Aaron Rodgers story could go on all season. What else are you, uh, what else is of interest? Uh, we have the Euro Cup 2021, which I think is one of these epic major stories across the entire world. Unfortunately, I suspect it's something that neither you or I are remotely capable of having a conversation about, except for the fact that when European soccer is big, for those of us that are interested in fandom, suddenly we start to do we do start to see some interesting stuff. The the sort of U.S. European soccer fans start to come out of the woodworks, watching early morning TV, going to soccer bars. Uh, it's, it's huge. And to me, it's, it's always kind of a great thing. Cause it tells me, even though my focus is on American sports, that fandom is a worldwide phenomena and we think American sports fans are crazy. Nope. Nope. They're, they're, they're minor leaguers in a lot of ways compared to, uh, international soccer fans. Yeah. I'll say this in regards to soccer. I know the, we spoke last week about the U S men's national teams. Um, victory over Mexico. One thing that's that struck me as as far as um, the, the national teams is that the U.S. presently doesn't have a household name on that team. I think there have been times where they have, um, and so for me, I think you know the challenge for them at this point is, and we've been talking about star-driven leagues, the NBA being all about the stars, the NFL becoming more and more that way with Aaron Rodgers storyline and Tom Brady last year jumping teams and winning the Super Bowl. Um US men's national team soccer, it's always been a little bit of like, oh, America's playing. They could make the country proud. Let's pull for them. I think that's a, a huge in in the US, like we don't have a messy, we don't have this household name soccer player that when he's on, everybody watches. And so it'll be interesting to me to see how, you know, those brands are built or attempted to, <laughs> to be built because this U.S. men's national team seems to be a bunch of, of new faces to the casual fan. I like that point. It's actually something I hadn't thought about. But, you know, sitting here in Atlanta where soccer is, local soccer is really an interesting thing where the uh, – Atlanta United have been putting, and I don't know what, you know, with, with COVID rules, but prior to COVID, when they were on a championship run, you know, they, they were putting 60, maybe 70,000 people in, in the stadium. And, and so it was truly major league soccer. I mean, you know, blowing away attendance records and having the attendance every bit at the level as some of the, the European, the, the English Premier League and, and other European teams but the stars of those teams were a couple of kids from south america mm -hmm. who then quickly were you know moved on or sold i think to european soccer clubs and so i i'm in full agreement with you 
as a, and I think this is what's kind of great about having different levels of interest in different sports. I couldn't name a single player, a single U.S. men's soccer player. So there is no one that they've put forward to to start to build some hype around that team. I don't know how big of a deal their victory over Mexico was in that tournament, but that strikes me as is fairly is fairly significant. Um, it'll be interesting to see what they actually do. How how do they position this team going forward to the next major rounds of international competition? Yeah, and getting back to the the Euro tournament, um, but tying it tying it to what we're talking about with U.S. soccer is the fact that it seems like the true soccer fans maybe they maybe it's one of those like they feel they feel like more of an expert if they watch Euro soccer and not U.S. soccer. But I mean, it's superior superior leagues over there as far as professional leagues. But I mean, a lot of American soccer fans aren't watching American soccer. Like the big, so- the non-casual soccer fans are, are watching these Euro games and are all excited about these foreign players and foreign teams and all the rest. And so it's like, what will it take for the U.S.? Obviously beating Mexico was, was a big deal and, and garnered some enthusiasm for the sport in this country. But, you know, I, I think it's just a matter of building stars. I think there's not a star power here that, that really draws in audiences and, and causes people to turn on their TV and watch the games um, when the U.S. men's team is playing. I think there's still more enthusiasm by Americans about other countries, soccer teams, soccer players, etc. Well, it's two, two points. Number one, I can only imagine what the hardcore Manchester United fan thinks of the person sitting here in Denver, Colorado, let's say, wearing a Manchester United jersey. They probably think that person's a, a, a lunatic, but appreciate the financial support to the club. I, women's soccer has told us, has shown us something, though, and even the growth of in, in MLS attendance over the last few years. American soccer probably is a sleeping giant. Now, what does it take to awaken it? Does it need to be something like where the, the U.S. men's team becomes the dominant international team, like the U.S. women's team? I don't see that. You know, that, That's incomprehensible. I think soccer people would laugh at that idea. But how good do they have to be? How competitive do they have to be in, in FIFA to actually, in the World Cup, to actually create that kind of stardom and that kind of legitimate interest? It's a it's a good question. I mean, I suppose they've got to they've got to go on a, at a minimum. They got to go on a deep run. They got to find their Trey Young and go multiple rounds in the in that tournament. Right, that's the only way forward. Yeah, and I think you know, paralleling them to the women's national team, the women's team over the years has had a number of players that I would consider to be household names. Um, oh, from before you were born, Doug. I mean, Mia Hamm. Yeah. Uh, so, so let me let me just finish this since it was before your time, youngster. Mia Hamm was part of a Gatorade commer- a Gatorade advertising campaign campaign with Peyton Manning and I think Michael Jordan and sort of luminaries from all the major sports. So she was put up there with, you know, the stars of stars, and that's got to be. I think her glory days were probably the, the late nineties. So it's. It's going back 20 plus years. 
Yeah, and, and there's been a, I mean, a number of of women's players who have earned, you know, the title of household name, in my opinion, amongst casual sports fans with the men's team, even, you know, this young team that, that just recently beat Mexico, like, like you said before, like, I don't think I could name off the top of my head, any of the players off that team. I don't think most sports fans in America could. So it's like, how does the U S franchise, if you will, um, start to build on some of the success that they they've had and start to market these players and try to create that Carly Lloyd, Alex Morgan, like those types of names where people are familiar with them and people turn on the game and they look for those players. Yeah. Megan Rapinoe. Um, it is, I think it's a good test for, for folks like you and me, not hardcore soccer fans that we can come up with a half dozen female soccer players. And when we're talking about the men's team, it's almost like I get the men's volleyball players over time in the Olympics confused with the soccer players, these guys that sort of, you know, pop up and, and then sort of immediately fall off the radar. Uh, speaking of the Olympics to bring this episode to a close, I heard this morning in terms of Japanese public sentiment that it's something like 60% to 70% of the population does not want the Olympics to occur. They just don't believe in fun. I don't, you know, like <laughs> they are terrified of they, I, I think the vaccination rate is something like two to 4%. And they think it's, it's going to restart the, the pandemic. So, you know, the, the Olympics is a, always a, a great story, an interesting story where the, these, let's say very sort of marginalized sports, track and field, swimming, where they get their due, how how much damage does it do to potentially lose one one year of the Olympics, push it back, and then maybe have a, an Olympics game tainted or maybe delayed or canceled again due to COVID? It's, um, you know, the, the major sports leagues with that, that have kind of the professional infrastructures can survive. I mean, like, one of the things and the sort of the background of this, I'm, I'm going back in, in time here. One of the interesting things to me about the Bulls maybe having a little disrespect for Michael Jordan or the Packers having some, you know, not showing proper respect for Aaron Rodgers is those franchises still sell out. And the Packers will still bring them in. But if it's something like the Olympics and you lose a couple of – Maybe, maybe the Olympics just gets canceled again. And if you cancel the Olympics, then I think you almost just wait till two more years and get back on the regular cycle. Does that do everlasting damage to some of these, to some of these different sports? Absolutely. I mean, there's a generation of kids that are, are missing their first Olympics. Um, but I actually think more on the athlete side, there, there are certain Olympic activities where you really, your window is only four years. There, there are certain athletes who have trained their entire life for an opportunity to compete in these Olympics. And if, if it's not these Olympics, it's never. And so I think that um, the stories that could be told and the, the narratives that could be, the, the Olympics are masterful at creating narratives. Um, the, and, and part of that is just the broadcasting of them. But, you know, there, there's a lot being missed out on and there's a lot of exposure for these sports that 
they only get every four years um, that that's being lost out on. And so, you know, I I'm excited for the Olympics. I love the Olympics. I keep forgetting that the Olympics are coming because it just doesn't feel like they are. Um, but apparently they're going to happen, I think. <laughs> and you, you never know at this point can never count on anything. And one thing about the Olympics that I like, and especially in this day and age is historically the Olympics have brought, countries together there's something that everyone can support and everyone can pull for it will be interesting to me to see in these olympics um if the current political socio-political divide will carry over into the sport will carry over will there, will there be controversies with which players are being pulled for based on what they believe or how they've behaved in recent years or if the country and of course, I'm speaking about the United States. We'll unite around its athletes and and pull for victory like we always have. You know what? I'm not even gonna. I, I think this is a good place to end the episode because that was very optimistic. That was very. That was a very positive view. Um, a, a, after sort of the reaching 53, 54 years of age, I tend to think the Olympics is this kind of strange political football where someone's always threatening to boycott the latest iteration of the game. So it's kind of cool to me that you actually kind of still see the positives of this because my favorite thing about the Olympics is just what you're saying, that narrative storytelling Mm -hmm. of, you know, because they got so much time. And so they're going to spend eight minutes on a female weightlifter, right? In the stories that she's overcome. And then they're going to go into you know, a four minute piece on a guy that's riding short track cycling. And, and so it's this kind of this, this novelty combined with the, the, the stories that makes it a special, it maybe not my favorite sporting event, but a definitely a special event that uh, has its place in the, absolutely has its place in the catalog. Okay. With that, let's wrap it up. So as always much more content at fandomanalytics.com. Uh, thanks for listening.